everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Healing America. Today, I am joined again with Dr. Stephen Bezdruchka, a retired ER physician and a global health professor at the University of Washington. Stephen, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. It is currently mid-July of 2020. We are currently in a global pandemic with an alarming increase of COVID-19 cases. Schools are slowly moving away from the anticipated hybrid plan back to fully online to ensure the safest form of education for their students. We are also in the middle of a civil rights movement. George Floyd's death sparked protests all over the country and all over the world. People took to the streets to protest against racism and police brutality. Corporate America took a stance against racism as did institutions all over the country. Social media users are spreading information and knowledge about racism. People are emphasizing the importance and urgent need to be anti-racist. Racism has been coined as its own pandemic. And there was this quote I read in an article the other day that said, this is a pandemic within another pandemic. Systemic racism is present in so many areas from employment to justice to education. And many of my classes like the one I took in the spring called structural racism and public health, I've learned how racial disparities affect health. This is evidenced by high rates of maternal mortality, unequal access to care, implicit bias, and many more, all majorly affecting black and minority groups. Stephen, as you are as a, as you are a global health professor, I would love if you could expand on how racism affects health. There's a lot to this question, so I've kind of broken it down into a few questions. Let's start with how does racism, not race, currently affect the COVID-19 pandemic? And why are more people of color, specifically black people, dying? So what is race? Uh, that's a hard thing to pin down. I, I think we have to go back to basics. Uh, race is, a, there is no gene, there's no um, biomarkers that says this person is of this race, this person is of another race. Um, Racism historically, race historically in the United States goes back to the founding of the country and uh, in, in the midst of slavery. And they wanted to document people who were slaves uh, in different populations to assign uh, voting rights or voting preferences. And so slaves were called other in the constitution and it was required to count the number of other and the number of white men to decide how proportional representation at the federal government would work the united states isn't alone in class of in in calling things race but it is essentially alone in the world in requiring people to identify themselves, to self-identify by race. So we have a country with 10% um, of the people identifying as African-American, a higher proportion identify as Latinx. I prefer the term Latinx since I haven't heard anybody call themselves a Hispanic, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then proportions of others, including uh, immigrants from various countries who settled here 
and maybe Syrian American or uh, uh, East Asian American and so on. So what does what does race represent? Well, I'm trying to present it as a social discriminator. So if you if you call yourself African American or black, um, that means you're going to have worse health. That is, you're going to have a shorter life, more mortality. Um, and that goes back to slavery. That is, we don't have good measurements on uh, people who were around in the 1700s or early 1800s. But there are studies on birth weights of um, black slave babies when they were one year old. And they had lower birth weights than the, than the others. And something that, that uh, is important to understand is that health is transmitted from one generation to the next. We've documented this for three or four generations. If three, why not uh, 10 or 15? So I think we can arguably trace the poor health outcomes for African-Americans today to the history of slavery. Now, um, it has been known in this country uh, since we began looking at it that African-Americans die younger, have worse health outcomes uh, than the non-African-Americans non except for American Indians. What is uh, new is that this, in, in where COVID-19 comes in, is that this, is, this appears to be new. That is, I can look at front, so my, one of the ways that I look at uh, information and the media is to look at front pages of the New York Times, arguably our paper of record. And back in April, the lead headline was that Blacks seem to be dying more of COVID uh, than other groups. Uh, as if that was a surprise, as if that was a new finding. Uh, it hasn't been a new finding since we had any studies on public health, uh, starting with slavery. But it is, but there is this sense in this country, given the Declaration of Independence, that we're all created equal. And therefore, uh, it would be surprising to have a large number of one particular ethnic group, if we can call them that race, uh, have, more, have worse health outcomes than others. So why might that be? So you find this outcome, uh, you mentioned healthcare uh, in in your um, in what you sent me, and it's quite interesting that uh, a study just published uh, this month looked at um, children undergoing surgery in the United States who were healthy, and looked at complications that included death, 
And guess what? African-American healthy children were much more likely to die for non-emergency surgery than white children. So you see the compromises in both the health, health measured by mortality, are you dead or alive, um, and in responses to medical care. So the same thing is happening with the, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. African-Americans are not responding to healthcare uh, the way you might want them to, uh, and that's because they are compromised since slavery. Now I can go into a lot more detail, but that's race. I haven't talked about racism yet. Mm -hmm. So what is racism? Well, uh, it comes in a variety of forms, uh, internalized, overt, structural, um, and so on. What, I, what strikes me as really important to understand is, in a, is seen in a one-minute video called Black Doll, White Doll. And I would encourage listeners to search Black Doll, White Doll, and you'll get a variety of, of videos. The one-minute version says it all. This refers to studies that have been carried out starting in the 1930s, in which they take Afri in which they take children and present them with dolls, black dolls and white dolls, and the particular one-minute video shows uh, a small uh, young African American children, ages four, five, six or so, presented with a black doll and a white doll, and asked to say which one is the pretty doll, which one is the nice doll, and so on they point to the white doll. And then uh, in, a, in a, um, a scene that still brings tears to my eyes, they ask a little girl, which one looks most like you? And of course she points to the black doll. So by early life, somewhere, you know, before they, they reach uh, teenage years, African-Americans tend to know that they are in some sense inferior. And this is, uh, so this is internalized racism and it happens without, you know, without being taught this in school, without it being portrayed on the media. Uh, it's just part of how this, uh, how it, it works in this country. There's a longer version that shows some of the original movie footage from the studies done in the 1930s and looks at uh, Latinx and other children. And, uh, and so there's something about the presentation of, to use the phrase, people of color uh, that makes them feel inferior. And at the same time, we who do not fall into that category uh, are conditioned to think of them as inferior. Mm -hmm. Let me stop at that point because I could go on for hours. No, yeah, that definitely, I remember watching that video in class and it was just so sad. And I think that, um, I mean, that's, that's a very, very real thing, like discrimination based on skin color 
also known as, you know, colorism. Um, it's a form of prejudice. And I think that is um, alive in so many cultures, sadly. Um, I was just watching this show the other day called Indian Matchmaking in India. They have um, this lotion called Fair and Lovely. And I don't know if you've heard of it before, but um, yeah, I mean, I think every single one of my friends growing up, um, we all had Fair and Lovely in our households. And the second we were in India, it was always Fair and Lovely, Fair and Lovely. And the reason behind it was that fair being whiter is being better than being dark. And um, especially in India, I am South Indian and South Indian people are usually darker skin than North Indian. And there is this like superiority that, you know, fair people are better and it affects everything, um, especially speaking to only the Indian culture um, in your life from like career, like there um, are barely any dark skin actresses or actors in, in the Bollywood industry and it affects marriage and just so many things about how, how people see you. And um, I mean, just now, because the topic of racism has been brought to it, like people are speaking about it a lot more now, um, colorism is also being talked about. And there's this new Netflix show called Indian Matchmaking. And um, it includes like uh, Indian millennials, people who grew up in the US and people from India and they're, you know, working with a matchmaker to get matched for a wedding. And um, it's really sad to see because every single person, they're like one of their criterias for their um, spouse is that they have to be fair or they have to be like light skinned, mm-hmm. um, which is just really sad. You know, it's like a really, really sad reality. Um, just reminded me of what you were talking about regarding the video and whites, how white skin is, you know, perpetuated to be more beautiful than darker skin, which is definitely not true. Right. And, and it's not just India or, um, you know, all around the world, uh, skin lightening products are big sellers. Mm-hmm. And um, similarly, African-Americans in this country, uh, have you heard of the term conking? I, I haven't. What exactly is that? So conking is the process by which you add chemicals to your hair to straighten it out. Mm. Yes, I, yeah. And so I, I a lot of African Americans did that. It was called, con- I don't know if it's called conking now, but I learned mm-hmm. that as a kid. Yeah, I know. It's so sad. I was reading, um, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her name, Ijeoma. Um, I think um, we saw her um, at the gala for EOC, I think, a while ago. Um, she wrote the book, So You Want to Talk About Race. And I was reading that book recently and her first um, few chapters were just about how like in the community she was like, um, she was criticized for being like, I guess like louder, her hair, like why does she have to wear her hair like that? That's not work appropriate. And I just think that's like an inappropriate comment to even say to someone like that's their hair. Like, you know what I mean? Like, let it be. Um, But I, I think there are just so many like microaggressions around and especially like regarding the skin lightening um, products. I was actually just um, reading about this dermatologist doctor who was talking about um, products for like uh, people of color, specifically the very melanated skin. And 
all over like beauty stores and whatnot, they have these products or like vitamin C, like brightening serum, blah, 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 like mm-hmm. reduce hyperpigmentation. And hyperpigmentation is very common in people of color, um, especially just because we have a lot more melanocytes than other people. And uh, she was saying that these products that are being sold are catered towards a fair, like wider audience and they work better on wider skin. And people of color have just adapted to that and been like, okay, like we'll just go with that. And that should work for our skin too. But um, she's a dermatologist and she was saying how actually a lot of the popular products from a lot of popular brands increase hyperpigmentation because um, they act differently Mm. with skin with a lot of melanocytes. Mm. So it was really interesting, you know, um, the entire colorism, racism, just in every single day, real life situations too. Um, I wanted to move on to my next question. Um, So what can be better done to protect these vulnerable groups? And what do you think needs to change? Well, there are all these uh, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion um, movements. You mentioned that corporate America is taking a stance against racism and other institutions. Mm -hmm. I would offer that this is mostly symbolic. Right. Um, Like performative activism. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, (laughs) racism is embedded in, in the country. We have a president who is openly racist. We have groups that are openly uh, racist and, it's almost a, a sense of pride to be calling yourself that. So I, I think we have to speak out against uh, these um, public relations ventures by a variety of industries, uh, especially, I mean, this all started at the end of May after the uh, killing of George Floyd, as you point out. That's been really fascinating that uh, who would have predicted a movement, not just within the United States, but uh, in many other parts of the world in sympathy. What, you know, Floyd wasn't the the first uh, one that police killed. Uh, It's estimated they kill a thousand a year for no reason at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wonder if part of the reason that it sparked so much response was because A lot of people had been self-quarantined, had been isolated, uh, weren't working, had time on their hands. And one of the ways in which you can quell protests is to make sure people adhere to uh, work hours and multiple jobs that they need to uh, keep themselves financially afloat. And now suddenly with the 30, 40 million people unemployed and time on their hands, um, something sparked all this. And a pandemic within a pandemic, uh, perhaps. <laughs> um, so the COVID pandemic might have facilitated that. What is Definitely. not? Hmm? Definitely, I agree. I think that's so interesting that. Um, you brought up the point of people not being employed and how that, um, you know, helped propel the movement forward. 
So what can be done, you say, to protect, uh, well, to deal with racism? Mm -hmm. um, it varies tremendously, I think, throughout the country and around the world. You have uh, uh, racial stereotypes in schools. You have uh, one in a hundred Amer African Americans is behind bars. Uh, you have such discrimination against them that uh, it's not like you can rub a salve on the <laughs> on the skin, so to speak, and uh, will all suddenly be become anti-racist. There are all these trainings taking place now. Um, I would like to believe that they're having an impact, but I'm not so I'm not so convinced. There's a woman in Seattle, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote a book called White Fragility, and she's in huge demand for speaking to corporations and a variety of different groups uh, about these issues and last uh, last week Sunday New York Times had a big long article about her including some that questioned the uh, utility of of anti-racism training I think we have to well we we have to recognize as some people have that all this has come about because of slavery because we uh, kept African-Americans down after the Emancipation Proclamation. That is, they were supposed to be given reparations, 40, 40 acres and a mule, you know, to set up their own economies. And, uh, and then there was a period of reconstruction. And that didn't go very far. I mean, <laughs> you know, there were there were no reparations then so some so if you bring up the topic there's uh, this fellow Tanishi Coates who wrote an article in the Atlantic a few years ago mm -hmm. about it's not too late for reparations mm -hmm. um, and so what would that require um, well for one thing um, you know African-American incomes are lower than white incomes. African-American wealth has really gone down. In fact, uh, if we look at trends in the last decade or two, um, African-Americans are economically worse off. They're certainly no better as a group of people. Uh, there are individuals, you know, with this great drive now, to have a diversity on, uh, in, in business, in academia, uh, the relatively small number of African-Americans who have the qualifications to lead departments in universities, uh, to be on uh, boards of directors, to be in the upper echelons of major corporations, you know, they're swapped up immediately. And then they're paraded out there as uh, token examples of how we're not racist. But their numbers are, are tiny. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's gonna take a, 
a long program of creating awareness, not, uh, you know, right now, um, we tend to blame people for their poor health. We can't blame those African-American kids who died at, at, at surgery just because they were black. The first thing, that, that's really a critical thing to recognize that you can't assign individual blame to the poor out, health outcomes for African-American people. I think Definitely. bringing these ideas into education at a very young age is really important. That, um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, where I grew up, there weren't, there were no African-Americans and um, there were other marginalized groups. And I heard that they, that they were not the equivalent of, uh, of others. And so you, you in, internalize these ideas and then it's very hard to change. So I think we need innovative methods in preschool, in parenting, in the early years of schooling to try and dispel the myth of one group being superior and the other being inferior. So this is going to take a generation or two. Uh, there's, no, there's no quick fix. Yeah. What needs to change? Well, perhaps um, doing representative sample studies on the black doll, white doll, uh, scenario mm -hmm. and trying to see, you know, if you did a population sample, uh, trying to see if there is any improvement. Yeah, definitely. I think that there needs to be so much more research and speaking about, um, I know you're just talking about one group being superior to the other. I think, um, I have been looking on social media has been, um, a great place to like learn a lot of new things. People are making a lot of infographics and teaching other people. Um, they were talking about like the model minority myth, which is um, faced towards a lot of uh, Asian American people. Um, it kind of like characterizes Asian Americans as polite law abiding individuals who have reached higher levels of success than the general population. Um, and I think that a lot of people use that myth um, to be like, oh, why can't like every other minority group be like this? But it's really under important to like understand history and recognize that it's only because of the 1965 Civil Rights Act that immigrants such as Asian people um, were allowed to come into this country and they had a preference for, um, you know, like more successful individuals. And it's not like, this group is better than the other group. There's just so much that contributes to, um, you know, how these people are seen in society. Um, and you mentioned education. Um, I just wanted to touch up on that really quickly. The other day I was on a conference call that was hosted by UW Medicine and the School of Public Health to talk about um, racism and being anti-racist. Um, and the physician quoted that said this, and I quote, um, I think the overall takeaway is that addressing anti-blackness within oneself should be a requirement before gaining admission to medical school, because the learning along the way should not be at the determinant of black classmates. And that's a goal of mine for the future of medicine. There have been 
um, a lot of petitions going around that are pushing for the University of Washington specifically to require more than just the three diversity um, credits that it currently requires and diversity credits or classes that you know teach about anthropology, sociology, issues that are going on in the world. Um, in your opinion, as a professor, how do you think that education, um, specifically med medical education, um, should change in order to address anti-racism and educate students about the inequities and inequalities in the world? Well, it's a tall order because um, in the in medical school, you study a bunch of of um, basic sciences, and then you uh, work in clinical settings where you have a mentor, a supervisor, uh, a guide, and uh, those people need to not have internalized anti racism, that is, pointing out the other. Um, you need good role models. How do you get good role models? I think it's hard. Um, same thing in public health. I mean, we have hardly any uh, African-American faculty in the school. Uh, there's a big push, supposedly, to try and get more. Uh, in the medical school, um, I think it's not much better. So, mm -hmm. A, we need role models who are sensitive to these issues and we need uh, more faculty of color. And they should be, it's difficult because um, a lot of the black people that seem to do well in this country have um, Caribbean heritage. Because I think racism is, there's less of it there. And, uh, and so when they come here, uh, they can navigate the system better and do more. That might be, you, you, you might say, well, that's a very racist thing to say. Uh, I think we have to accept that there are inherent difficulties in succeeding in the system that whites have created for people of other colors. Mm -hmm. And a few will do well and a few, and, and most will not. When I've talked to school boards, so, you know, public schools teach to the test uh, and, so, and, and the test doesn't have much, well, I don't think it has any material about race and racism in it. And we know that African, you know, school, uh, school populations with higher percentages of African-Americans are gonna do worse on the tests. So a study was done in Florida looking at every person born between 1982 and 1990 that went to a public school and they tracked their birth weight with how they performed on these standardized tests. And what was so clear was that low birth weight was uh, associated with uh, doing more poorly on the standardized tests. Now you can, you can criticize standardized tests as being uh, not measuring something that's important, 
but nevertheless, they are measuring something. And if children born of a low birth weight, and the birth weight, it depends on the birth weight, do more poorly, that suggests that their brain development has been compromised. And you find this when you look at African-American outcomes, uh, that low birth weight is, is a big challenge that is very hard to overcome. So there are basic reasons why the white created academia may not, and, and the various hoops that people have to jump through uh, may not be the right ones for either society or for African-Americans. You know, why should the white constructed academic standards be those that are applied to others? Well, because we're white and we know what's best, but that's, that's as racist as you get. Definitely. Um, I definitely think that education, there's a lot of um, room for improvement. There's a lot of um, change needed. I was reading this article from the New England Journal of Medicine um, written by uh, a Harvard medical student. She's actually the first black president of Harvard Med. Um, and she was talking about um, Lyme disease and how Lyme disease is hard to see in patients who are not white and therefore we don't, she said, I quote, um, therefore we don't need to depend on rash recognition for diagnosis. And she was basically talking about um, how in a lot of skin conditions there are just um, ways to detect signs and symptoms in white skin and there's not much talked about about how to do the same for brown and black skin. Um, and she basically wrote an amazing essay about um, how it's important to include images of more than just one skin type and learning material and have more reference photos of patient with patients with non-white skin, um, which I thought it was an incredible essay and um, I'll definitely send it to you. It's called How a Medical Education is Missing the Bullseye. Mm. But um, yeah, it's it, it was very eye-opening as to um, how much is actually missing and uh, Rachel Chapman had taught a course about medical anthropology and I remember we were reading um, this book called The Skeletons in the Anthropological Closet and this was written by a black anthropology professor at Columbia University and I think he um, yeah he published the book and he was basically talking about the skeletons being that anthropology is a very you know, it's, it's a field that is based on what white people thought um, and defined who was human and what, what does it mean to be human. And there are a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of wrong within anthropology, but it was a field that was built on the, you know, initial observations from those who could publish their observations. And those people were, you know, rich white men. Um, and it was just, it's really interesting, like learning in classes, like all these issues that you never really thought of before, but that are actually there, you know, the skeletons in education. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Um, so, sorry, continue. What were you, were you no, I was just going to say, um, a lot of African Americans don't trust medical care. They mm -hmm. remember the Tuskegee study done in the 1930s and uh, 
continued to 1972, in which in Tuskegee, I think it's Alabama, um, African-Americans with syphilis were studied to see how the disease affected them. And then in the late 1940s, when they discovered uh, that penicillin was a treatment, the African-Americans were not treated because they wanted to see how the disease continued to progress. This kept, went on until 1972. Uh, I was in medical school then, when, a, when a, an investigative reporter um, broke the story, a whistleblower, so to speak, and uh, suddenly we realized how disgraceful it was that here we have effective treatments and we're not using them uh, and we're doing this to a, a group that we wanted to use as experimental subjects. Not very good. Similarly, mm -hmm. the, the, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, that uh, oh, very yeah. good book, uh, you know, her uh, cervical cancer cells have been uh, utilized all around the world without the permission of her family. Uh, and, and so that's just not fair either. No, it's completely unfair. It's, it's horrible. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that with the current pandemic, um, with COVID-19 and the intersection of a civil rights movement, do you think this could, you know, provide maybe new solutions to the current problems and disparities that we've seen throughout the world? and especially healthcare or health? Well, the most important thing that is not discussed in this country is that our health status is worse than all the other rich countries. This is BC before COVID. And uh, for pretty well any indicator of health, except how much money we spend on healthcare. So we die younger than people in all the other rich countries. We have higher mortality rates uh, uh, at pretty well all levels. And so part of the reason we're not, we are the world's leader in uh, COVID-19 cases and deaths is that you can't produce health in a, you can't take care of COVID in a country that is basically so unhealthy. Depending on the indicator you use, somewhere between 35 and 50 or 60 countries have lower mortality rates. Now, we used to be one of the healthiest in the early 1950s, but other countries have seen much more robust uh, uh, health improvements. And uh, recently our health measured by say life expectancy has been declining. So this is all before COVID. So um, first of all, we shouldn't be the gold medal winter winner in the COVID death Olympics. And then we should start to, we should do something to make our health uh, improve. Uh, well, if we say compared to other countries, um, that sounds a little judgmental. We should be doing better than other countries. But there's the natural assumption in this country is that we're number one and other countries should aspire to be uh, closer to what we are 
when nothing could be further from reality. So making yeah. aware that we're, we die younger than people in so many other countries before COVID, and COVID probably has not helped that situation, we need to make that aware and to start to see health improvements, it will naturally, uh, I think, lead to improvements for African Americans as well, without focusing specifically on them. So what needs to be done? Well, um, the biggest, the most important research finding to me of the last uh, 50 years, 40 years, has been the uh, discovery of the relationship between economic inequality, usually income inequality, and health outcomes. First study was published in 1979, and now we have hundreds of studies that show that inequality kills. So in the current pandemic, uh, there are tremendous profiteers. The richest person in the world has seen his wealth rise by $50 billion since the pandemic started. Imagine that. Uh, he's predicted, this is Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he's predicted to be the world's first trillionaire in 2026. I mean, that is the most obscene thing that's happening all these pandemic yeah. <laughs> profiteers. So that needs to stop. How is it going to stop? Well, we need, just as uh, um, we had this pandemic within a pandemic assessing racism, we need a pandemic within a pandemic to stop the uh, the looting. You know, we people talked about the looting of the stores during some of the demonstrations, but the rich people are do far more looting, much more effectively, and no one is taking them on. So number one, we have to decrease inequality two levels we had in the 1950s when we were one of the more one of the world's healthiest countries and also much more equal the second thing is that early life lasts a lifetime so much of our health is programmed in the first thousand days after conception so we need policies that address that period to uh, produce uh, better health in adulthood and what kind of policies might they be? Well, uh, we are one of two countries in the world with populations over a million that don't give a working woman who's pregnant paid time off work after she has her baby. The other country is Papua New Guinea. So we need a national program of paid parental leave like almost all the other countries in the world have. We need financial support in early life. We need uh, preschool, daycare, uh, all of those factors affecting early life that have, so what that entails is social spending. Namely, um, our social safety net in this country is totally disgusting. You know, the employment, unemployment rate in Germany is hardly budged. They have a very strong social safety net. So I'm continually trying to find metaphors to describe the social safety net. And, um, you know, uh, 
Inuit or Eskimos do this, uh, they make a essentially a large trampoline or the equivalent out of it sewn out of uh, caribou skin hides. And they, and they have people around the perimeter and they have a person get in the center and they start tensioning the trampoline as it is, throwing the person up in the air and then they hold it taut and the person bounces down, toss them up in the air again, bounces down. Well, that, that depends on trusting the people holding the trampoline that they won't all let go and you'll land on the ground to come to harm. It also depends on the pieces of, of hide that are sewn in there uh, are, have been sewed well, so tears or holes don't develop that will uh, make the person get injured. So we, our social safety net, first of all, it's, uh, it's got a lot of holes in it and you can't trust the perimeter so it doesn't, um, so it doesn't stop you from falling on the ground. I, this is the first time I've tried to present this, uh, um, this metaphor of mm -hmm. a social safety net. Uh, you know, it, a, good, a good trampoline in this Eskimo depiction I've made requires people that you trust to hold it. It requires people to have made it carefully so no tears will happen. And, uh, and that's what we need. We need a social safety net in this country that's going to take care of people uh, whenever they need it. I definitely agree. I think that's a huge part of the change that needs to happen. Um, I just wanted to end on this last question. Um, are you hopeful about the future, the way things are going and um, people becoming more knowledgeable about racism, becoming more anti-racist, hopefully, and you know, um, changes being actually implemented and practiced? Yes, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing all this if I didn't think uh, <laughs> there was hope in the, in the future. Um, yeah. Basically, societies cycle in good directions and then they revert. And uh, I'm hoping that the demonstrations that started in June uh, continue in the good direction. I'm worried about the national reprisals that uh, our, our president is sending in uh, troops and military to try and squash the protests. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, hopefully we will be able to resist all that and that mm -hmm. um, some sense can come into play there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, um, I feel like a lot of my generation and the youth are very um, open and they're very vocal about change that needs to happen. Um, it's been very inspiring to see a lot of my peers, you know, take part in um, these kind of movements and just really educate um, people around, you know, like our peers, our friends, our classmates, and really teach each other what we've learned, especially my friends who aren't um, public health or um, inclined to do medicine or 
like, you know, talking to them about things that we've learned. Um, it's been great to see. And I definitely am hopeful. And I really hope that things move in a positive direction um, regarding racism and discrimination, but also um, COVID-19 and the pandemic in this country. And we all have to do our part. It's not going to happen unless uh, we, we organize, work together. Oh, definitely. I, I think that's, um, I was listening to Sanjay Gupta's um, Facts versus Fears Coronavirus podcast, and he was talking about how this is one time in like history where uh, your actions directly affect another person's life or their health. And I think that is a really important point to make because we are a country that is so individualistic at times that we forget the people that are beneath us or around us and this is um this pandemic just goes to show that you know every single person needs to be social distancing washing their hands wearing their mask it's not that hard to do <laughs> otherwise rates are going to keep going up and people want life to go back to normal but that's just not going to happen if people don't comply with the rules of you know um what everybody else is trying to do so couldn't hopefully, agree with you more. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully things go um, in the right direction. And just wanted to say thank you again, Stephen, for this podcast episode. This was a really um, good discussion about things that are going on. And um, hopefully we will be back soon with another one. Great. Thank you. Thank you.